from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Okay, I've called this the pain and the pleasure because I think it's very easy normally when you get these kinds of presentations to make it look like everything went brilliantly and it was all smooth running beginning to end. And those of us in the space industry know that's never true. That's not what happens. So um, this is really a chance to sort of... It's, 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 there's mostly, it's, you know, it's, um, it, it tells a good story because obviously it was a good story with a, with a happy end. But along the way, there were glitches. And I think it's good for us to talk about those and be open and honest with each other. So this is going to be a whirlwind tour of a low-cost satellite program. And as I say, it's going to, we're going to tell you what worked, what didn't. And also at the end, I'm going to talk about what we would do next time if there were a next time. So there's a rationale for an orbit demonstration. And... Many of you will have seen these slides many times, uh, this one certainly. Uh, this is the, the famous Twin Valleys of Death, where you talk about um, the failure to industrialise research that everyone faces, which is that you build something, it's sitting on the bench, but how on earth do you get that thing into space and demonstrate that it works? And then there's the service demonstration, where you've got something in space, but how do you connect with the end users? How do you develop the applications and services that come out of that? So these are the two valleys of death, and what we see is that something like a tech demonstration program or an in-orbit demonstration program helps you uh, hurdle over those two valleys. Um, as an example, uh, back when it was BNSC, not UKSA, um, we actually were very fortunate at Surrey Satellites to be able to get some investment that came our way. Um, and it was the first time we'd really ever got any substantial government investment beyond the odd sort of 10K here and there. Um, and we actually, we, we, we ended up with uh, building UK DMC1. Um, we built, we were responsible for building the bus for Topsat, which was led by Kinetic. And we also developed some uh, geostationary mini satellite platform avionics. But those investments, we can actually draw a direct line. We've got this nice chart here that, that demonstrates that now, you start up here with UK DMC1 and Topsat, and actually all of the missions that we were able to sell and the technologies that we were able to demonstrate enabled all of this business down here to happen, which it genuinely wouldn't without these two missions going ahead. Um, and that kind of story allows you to demonstrate why it's worth put, investing in technology and technology demonstration. What we're looking at with TDS1 was to have a program which represented a similar growth opportunity. And in some respects, we hope it will. Other areas, which I'll come to later, we know that it didn't quite work as expected. So IOD activities at SSTL. Well, we've got a long history of IOD. So the first early USATs, you know, when it was Martin Sweeting and, and five guys working in a university department, um, right up to we've got some recent internally funded missions. So USAT-12, where the University of Surrey supported us, and SNAP-1, which was done with the University of Surrey. Those were both fascinating missions to do. Uh, they weren't funded externally. This was where uh, Surrey effectively found a way in between contracts, because you know the space industry being as cyclical as it is, there are times when you actually, unfortunately, have people with nothing to do. Um, doesn't seem to happen anymore, uh, sorry, um, but there was a time. And uh, at that time, we did the UK's first nanosatellite, SNAP-1, uh, which did, was demonstrating formation flying in satellite links, propulsion on a nanosatellite and inspection cameras. 
And we also did a, a much larger vehicle, a 400 kilogram uh, vehicle called USAT-12, which was effectively a systems demonstrator. And we brought in things like our, our CAN bus data, uh, data handling architecture, um, triple redundancy to be able to really try out some new experimental subsystems. And then more recently, Strand One, which was a free U CubeSat with phone payload and electric propulsion. Um, UK's first CubeSat. Sorry, Steve. Sorry. Um, what I'd say is best lessons on IOD missions are probably learned from failure as well as success. Uh, on all of those, of course, we'll do publicly, uh, we'll, we'll put together presentations that will go out and show how USAT-12, SNAP-1 and Strand-1 were all fantastic missions and everything worked perfectly. Um, I'm not going to dig into the details on those missions. That's what I'm not what I'm talking about today. Um, suffice to say, not everything worked on all of those missions. And we learned a lot from that as a company. Um, and uh, I think, you know, you look at the DARPA philosophy of 25% success rate and, and what they're aiming for in, in trying to do cutting-edge activities. That's kind of how we approach some of those internally funded missions, that we're trying to do something fast, we're trying to do something game-changing and interesting. Um, the consequence is it doesn't always work 100%. But, you know, we're not fools. We learn from the things that don't go right. Um, Bizarrely, ESA actually view GOVA, which we see as one of our great successful operational missions, as an IOD mission. Um, and I think we're quite happy. That's still going after, I think it's probably 99 months since I wrote this slide. Um, had a design, month of, a design life of 27 months. So uh, as an IOD mission, I'm quite, you know, I think we're all quite proud of that. But all the stuff above isn't the whole story. We'd love to pretend that you know, we looked out and saw in the UK that everybody needed to do this, and it was an altruistic UK mission. Um, but the fact is, our new commercial customers, they won't let us fly uh, experimental subsystems on our missions, quite rightly. They don't want us to be you know, filling up the, uh, the mass budget of the satellites with a bunch of experiments that may or may not work. Uh, so we needed to find a way to, to put together some kind of program that initially we wanted something for us um, that would allow us to demonstrate the same growth we got out of Mosaic. So we approached uh, CEDA, uh, South East England Development Agency, uh, in the good old days with the regional development agencies. Um, they were fantastically supportive um, and they then pointed us on to the Technology Strategy Board uh, to seek funding for the mission. Um, they agreed that this was an excellent idea but uh, they did point out that it really needs to be a national activity and not just benefit SSTL, which I guess was completely reasonable. So, quick headline, Tech Demo Set 1. In summary, funded by TSB and CEDA, um, we, it's got eight distinct payloads plus a bunch of next-generation avionics, which I'll come back to. It started with seven payloads. Um, in fairly short order, having started the mission and got the seven payloads lined up, we lost three which was a little bit careless. Um, and I'll come on to that later. Uh, there was a synthetic aperture radar antenna we were going to have. That's, that became an altimeter, and it merged with the GNSS reflectometry payload. And we added five new payloads. So in terms of flexibility on payload accommodation, that was a vital requirement for us. We needed to be able to deal with the fact that when you're doing an orbit demonstration, people turn up at the last minute, people fall off. Um, you need to have a flexible design, and not just technically, but also programmatically that allows you to do that. Uh, the whole point of the thing was it had to be rapid schedule to short circuit the need for ground qualification. Um, the payloads must have a clear exploitation route. That was 
very, very important um, from TSB. It was very clear that we weren't just doing this for the good of our health. We were doing this because we were helping to leverage and grow the economy and do all the good things we need to do in the growth agenda. Uh, and the mission must be low cost. So the platform plus the spacecraft AIV, including putting the payloads on, uh, was three and a half million pounds. Uh, and then on top of that, launch and operations. So organization and governance of the project. Uh, we ended up with a situation with SSTL effectively acting both as the internal customer for the project and the prime building the spacecraft. Cedar and CEDA and provided their money via TSB, and TSB provided the grant provision and the monitoring that allowed us to, uh, to make sure that we were, you know, there was a certain amount of diligence in how we were spending the money. Uh, there was a, an independent advice and steer provided by a payload providers management group, which also included representatives of TSB, CEDA, and the UK Space Agency, um, as well as some independent uh, people from around the UK with expertise. And then we had a collaboration agreement with the payload providers. I've just shown four there, but there would have been uh, eight of those. So, pain and pleasure. Uh, I thought it would be good to talk about this as we go. The, the pleasure, well, there was superb support from both CEDA and TSB, and that really was, I can't emphasise enough, not just because people might be in the room, but you know, genuinely, absolutely superb, really fought for us, really worked hard with us to make this happen. Um, you know, from Michael Lawrence through to Tim Just on the on the TSB side, fantastic. Um, Cedar, um, really, really good, really great. And some of those guys carried on, and um, we still are in touch with them. Uh, we also um, act as our own internal customer, which was you know pretty nice. It's, it's nice to have your own internal customer, not have somebody shouting at you. Um, pain, well, the funding mechanism. It's necessarily gate driven. Um, we were treading new ground with the TSB grant, um, and it came in a number of stages, which meant that bits, things were paid, you know, after we, we would know we had enough money for the next six months or the next year. And that's quite a difficult thing to have, to have as a company and to operate with, where you never have the certainty that you're going to be able to cover your costs. Um, there was also an, the, an audit pain of the grant. Um, you know, it sounds like I'm whinging here about being given money. Sorry if that sounds that way, but um, it's not to be underestimated being audited on a grant, um, which we also then had to effectively manage the audit for the payload providers as well. Um, I say we, but there are people like Victoria, the project manager in this room, who, uh, who had to deal with that pain, and it wasn't, it wasn't fun. And the CEDAR aspect, actually, um, bizarrely um, confused some payload providers. I, I had to go and see a couple of the payload providers and explain very loudly a couple of times that it wasn't just for people in the southeast of England, this mission, because I think they saw the CEDAR, word CEDAR attached and it turned some people off. Um, bizarrely. Anyway. So who did get involved? Um, still got the ISIC logo here, which is quite nice. Um, so it was ISIC for a while as well. Um, but looking around, it eventually ended up being a, a more academic affair than an industrial affair. Uh, and we had good representation for some excellent uh, universities that uh, work in the space domain. No more slides? No. Ah, there you go. There's, here's the external payloads. So. You can see they broadly break into probably about three categories. So looking down, the MURAM chaps, LUCID, and HMRM are all effectively radiation monitors of different flavors. 
allowing us to look at everything from thermal electrons all the way up to uh, high-energy cosmic rays. Um, inclusion of the Langton Star Centre actually came about because uh, they won a, a schools competition to develop a <coughs> payload to fly on a mission. So that's actually a, a, um, a secondary school. Then there's the University of Oxford, who've got a, an Earth imaging payload. Uh, down here we've got the C-State payload, which is uh, SSTL, which is the altimeter combined with the uh, GNSS reflectometry payload. And then finally a couple of technology payloads. So deorbit sail from Cranfield University, um, because let's be honest, it's pretty important that we figure out a way to start bringing our spacecraft down. And uh, also a CubeSat attitude control system from SSBV which might look quite weird having a CubeSat payload on um, a mission like TDS. I think it actually just makes the point that it's really, really hard in the UK and in Europe to find a way to access a CubeSat to fly a CubeSat payload. Um, so we actually end up flying CubeSat payloads on a large satellite because of that. <coughs> payloads. The final complement of payload providers were mostly superb. Um, they were incredibly committed, responsive, and pragmatic. Um, I won't get into the, the mostly in a bracket, um, but I'm happy if anyone wants to buy me a drink to, uh, to explain the mostly. Um, uh, uh, Victoria won't need a drink, actually, to explain the mostly. Um, the pain. Uh, there was initial enthusiasm of some uh, payload providers, which was very quickly replaced with, so who's going to pay me to do this development? Um, and it was very hard to get over that hump because you know, a lot of people thought, oh, great, we're going to demonstrate some new technologies. So where's the money for me to develop my new technology? Uh, and to get past the point where actually the grant provided the infrastructure. And that was important to, to have that distinction. So the grant paid for the platform and it, initially, and it paid for the integration of payloads onto that. SSTL, we paid for all of our internal developments and the C-State payload and all that. That came out of internal funding. Um, but we also needed, for the grant system to work, we needed the payload providers to also fund their own payloads or find some other way to get those payloads funded. And I think we certainly found out very quickly that some of the payload providers were expecting a handout. So that was interesting, and that's, something, that's a definite lesson learned and certainly how we would express the competition next time when we were looking for people to fly. Um, in some cases, commercial pressures um, actually led to payload providers withdrawing. One very good payload was withdrawn because um, they were actually just in a pinch point where they had too much work and not enough people. So they had to descope, which was a great shame. Um, and another one where, because we'd offered this very low-cost mission, uh, we'd had to make certain compromises. So we were saying, OK, you can come on the mission, but actually you can have a CAN data bus because that's the SSTL standard. We're not going to accommodate all the data buses that might be out there. Um, for most people, that was okay. Uh, for one payload, it just turned around and said, well, actually, when I come to, you know, I've, I've qualified this thing on your mission, I can't sell it to somebody with a CAN data bus. Hardly anybody uses CAN data bus. So they came off, which is a shame. But that was another lesson learned, I think, for us for the next time. And the system, um, that's not a great diagram. Um, all it really illustrates, and I think, that, well, it illustrates a lot of things, but I think the important thing to take away from it is that we built a satellite where we provided a heritage, a, 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 a backbone of the satellite, which is the, uh, the, the A side of the satellite, which was all based on equipment that we'd flown before. So all of this pale blue stuff, like three reaction wheels we've flown before, and sun sensors we've flown before, and uh, battery charge modules, and all, all that kind of thing is stuff we've flown before. 
But then we put on an awful lot of our internal developments, all the green stuff here where we wanted to try a new fine sun sensor, our new computer, um, our new receiver, etc., etc. These were all brand new internal developments. And this is when you look at matching a three and a half million grant, uh, which became larger in the end, we more than matched it with the amount of internal investment SSDL put in. And then down here, you can see the payloads, including a couple of extra ones that SSTL put on. So I said there were four radiation monitors. There were actually five, because we also snuck another one on there. And an inspection camera, which provided us with a very interesting image and video, which I'll show you later. So doing it internally and, and how we had to do this, the, the, the pleasure was it was a real opportunity for us to fill a satellite with SSTL platform technologies. Um, and it also really focused our product development guys because you know, it's very easy when you're doing product development to let things drift. Um, and actually, doesn't, you know, it, a customer shouting at you, even that doesn't always work. But when you know you've got to make a launch, that really does focus the mind. So uh, it helped us get our product developments finished on time. Um, and obviously, minimal customer interference. You know, it was our, our internal customer, and he, he was fantastic. Uh, he, he was very supportive. Um, the pain, doing a, doing a satellite this size for three and a half million is really, really hard. Um, really hard. I, I could just fill that whole box with the words really, 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 really hard. Um, we got there, but it was painful. So post-launch, three-year mission, uh, an option we can put on an extra couple of years. Um, this would just annoy our friends at Cranfield, though, because they must be surely desperate to get the deorbit sale out. And if they have to wait another two years, that would be terrible. So... Uh, so we've, we've, we've promised Steve and the gang that they, they will uh, hopefully, uh, in three, after three years, get their uh, uh, sail deployed. Um, TDS-1 was the first satellite commissioned from Harwell, from, from the Catapult. Um, the Mission Operations Centre is still located at Harwell, uh, and we operate the payloads, and the mission planning system is run out of there. Uh, the mission planning system was funded by the UK Space Agency um, and written and developed by CISIS, and they worked with us to do that. Um, we operate the payloads in an eight-day cycle, so uh, because you can't put all the payloads on at the same time, the power, data, pointing, everything budget just doesn't work that way. Um, we end up having a very clever system that our, our guys came up with, which allows you to have um, two days when a certain group of payloads are operated together, then another two days with another group, then another two days with another group, and then we get the last two days to operate our product development activities. Uh, the spacecraft operations are still done from SSTL in Guildford because that was just the most cost-effective way to do it. Uh, we have a team that's there already operating spacecraft that are just like this one. It would just have increased costs if we were to find a way to, uh, to train a bunch of people how to operate our satellite in Harwell. So the benefit to the payload providers, well, our friends at Catapult um, have done a survey, and they did a lot of things in the survey, but one of, this one I quite liked, which was um, looking at, they, they interviewed all the payload providers and said, you know, considering what technology readiness your payload was before it went up, how do you, what do you perceive it's actually going to achieve from flying on, on Tech Demo Sat? And that's a really nice story, I think. You can see that, you know, they, they really are at that point where the next step is, you know, you're selling your payload commercially once you've got to a, a TRL of 7.5. Whatever 7.5 might mean, I suspect probably should round that. Um, the withdrawal of some of the commercial payload providers was a bit interesting because it started off more, there was a story about how, you know, we were going to develop potentially services and we were going to start operating really commercial payloads out of Tech Demosat. 
Um, as they came out, the guys that were actually agile enough to come in in their place were university payloads. So you've ended up with a much more academic mission uh, than we'd originally planned. Um, it's superb for technology demonstration, but the exploitation, actually the story becomes a little bit different. So I promised a warts and all presentation. So there's the warts. It's not the best picture, but uh, you know, if I'm going to embarrass other people, I should get myself out of the way first. Um, and here's the all. So this is uh, the rest of the team. Um, I'm still lurking in the background, but uh, yeah, there you go. But, uh, much, much better. It's much nicer hiding behind people. And uh, when a payload comes off quite late and you've got a little bit of space in the satellite, what better thing to do than put a plaque with the names of everybody in the company up there? Um, let's think. Can we see anybody we know here? Uh, oh, there he is. Phil. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I think you took a lot of these photographs. Um, the launch. Tim. Uh, Uh, sorting out the launch was all pain and no pleasure until we uh, lit the blue touch paper and retired to a safe distance. Uh, we went for a number of routes to try and get a launch. Trying to get a cheap launch is always fun. Uh, we initially, our friends at the UK Space Agency were very helpful. They had an MOU with the Indians. Um, it became an expensive dead end for all of us, chasing around after the hope of a launch, only to discover quite near the end that um, our friends at Israel smiling and saying, yes, actually meant no. Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, lessons learned. Um, we had a Vega opportunity with ESA. Um, that became challenging when, after the successful first launch of Vega, um, the price mysteriously went up by 40%, even though we'd agreed a price. Um, but apparently, that once you've had a successful launch, then obviously the rocket's worth more, so they have to charge you more. Um, Sorry, is with the Russians was an absolutely excellent deal, but we were at the whims of the primary passenger. It's always the way when you're a piggyback or an auxiliary. Uh, and that primary passenger got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And, delayed. and we, we launched summer this year. Uh, we were ready early last year. Uh, same story for UCube 1. He went up with us. So there we've got some nice pictures. You know, this is us sort of on the last views before we disappear inside the fairing. And the team at the launch site. Some, uh, actually, not particularly embarrassing picture, which is good. Um, and followed, and we have, this is the uh, Leopold commissioning team from Catapult, where they set up a lovely uh, ground station for us, nice big screens. As you'd expect, all that stuff's done really well by the guys up at Harwell. So it was a really interesting experience compared to our more shoestring efforts in Guildford. Payload commissioning. Um, well, we're in that phase now, so we're pretty much there. Uh, the platform's commissioned. We've handed over the satellite to Catapult on the 22nd of October. Uh, this is some of the early data that's come in from the C-State payload showing the delayed Doppler maps being generated that we are hoping we'll be able to start getting interesting information about C-State, wind speeds, etc. Um, and we're looking at an option for doing an RFP on software and operations in the future. Uh, but we're still in the background commissioning our onboard computer, uh, which we'll be able to do the software experiments on. So we're not ready to do that just yet. And then we put an inspection camera on the satellite. And we didn't realise quite how good that would be. So we came off the, uh, the satellite, off the uh, launch vehicle, off the Soyuz frigate, 
Uh, our inspection camera is pointed at the X-band antenna horn. And as you'll see, as we pan round, well, first of all, this is very nice. The logo gets illuminated by the sun. And when we come back round, you'll notice the fregger upstage. There it goes. Flying past in the background. And a really fantastic thing. Um, I think we always want to put inspection cameras on our satellites, but uh, I think this sort of proves the power of it. Uh, in terms of engagement uh, with uh, the media and other people, this has been a real hit, as you can imagine, and, and it really sort of raised the profile of the mission. But what we've got to really do now is actually start showing how we're going to exploit the rest of the payloads. So as I say, we've got the ones from the Sea uh, State payload, we've got that in, pro in process. Uh, now, there are now a bunch of other payloads that we really want to start exercising and demonstrating that we've done something really useful. So the future. Um, for future IODs, first of all, I would really strongly suggest if we do this again, we would have an independent customer. I think um, there was certainly an attitude from some of the payload providers that having SSTL be their own customer for this mission didn't give them quite what they needed in terms of assurances. Uh, I think it would take away a lot of those issues if we had the independent customer. Uh, we would offer a range of data interfaces, um, probably not Milbus, but certainly the other ones we would look at. Uh, we would look at having a high performance standard, not just in the experimental string, in terms of having data storage and transmission, power generation, precision pointing. And we'd also want to offer software, offer software experiments as standard, but all of this drives up costs. So how do we deal with that? Well, I'm going to do something else that's going to drive up costs. Which is, I think we should do this as an ongoing activity to get the most value. Um, we should look at this as like catching a bus. Uh, having platforms going up every couple of years actually allows people to plan. One of the issues we've got is that the payload schedules get coupled directly to the platform schedule at the moment. Now, what you ideally want is to be able to deal with payloads that are being developed and maybe taking seven years to be developed or six months and being able to accommodate all of those. That doesn't work when you put out a call and say, your payload's got to be here in 18 months, who wants to play? You turn off a lot of people and a lot of people can't make that. What you actually want is a program, a national or a European program, which is just constantly running. And you know that you can go and look up that bus timetable and say, right, my product development is going to be ready in 2019. What's the next bus I can catch? And people can start to plan that in. Um, people doing, you know, the university is doing research can start building that in when they're applying for research grants, etc. This should be infrastructure that we could offer. Um, we should also look at other sizes of satellites. Um, I think whether it's a, a CubeSat or a big satellite or a, um, hosting on a Geocom satellite, that kind of program would be really beneficial. We also should look at a range of orbits. There you see a, a wonderful example of um, some work we've done uh, with the European Space Agency for a, a lunar mission, which would actually allow you to do lunar demonstration. But to do all of this, I think you need to find a way to actually recover some money from it, because you can't just ask for this as a, and say, please, Mr. TSB, open your checkbook and write me a, a nice big fat check so I can do this for the next 10 years. You need to find a way to make this pay for itself. Um, and part of that is, I think, looking at addressing the applications and the services, so maximizing you know, what you can actually put out there to people that want to make use of satellites, use the data. You could 
possible vision would be having thematic vision, uh, missions. You get anchor customers who are looking at future markets. They, they maybe take the, the bulk of the payload on the, on the mission. Uh, you could look at a mission that would transfer to a commercial operator after a demonstration phase. And that demonstration phase might not just be a technology demonstration. It might also be a service demonstration. Um, and then look at putting payload space allocated to tech demos and outreach stuff. Um, I think this vision of ID could become a self-sustaining reality in that the, each mission could then pay for the next mission. You could end up with a pot of money where you're generating revenue because after that first year where you've exercised the payloads, you've shown they work, you're starting to actually make money and you're selling the mission on to, an, to a service operator um, and it allows you to plow money back into the program. So that's the kind of vision, even in lunar orbit, where lunar comms are something that's going to be needed in the future, I think this kind of approach would probably work. So thank you very much. Um, so another, that's another warts. And then and there's a, another person. I just thought it would be, yeah. <laughs> so I'll leave that up there while you ask questions. Good evening, everybody. Um, my name's Steve Greenland, and yeah, as has been said, I'm a systems engineer at Clyde Space. I also had the privilege of, of leading um, on YouTube one which was our first satellite. Um, probably like to say right at the beginning, in terms of the pleasure and the pain, um, I agree with Doug in, in pretty much um, all, all the areas which he reports on, then we experience something to a greater or lesser extent um, that will be this, the same. Um, so what I'll do with this presentation, rather than repeat those, um, is talk a bit more about um, the, the personal perspective and the journey. But before I do, um, then, ooh, is this, okay, um, before I do, then uh, I'd just like to acknowledge all the people who were involved in, in UQ. Um, this was very much a learning process for everyone involved. Um, a lot of us hadn't been involved to, uh, in a full spacecraft program. In fact, that was one of the reasons for, for doing this. Um, we had fantastic support from um, all, all parts of government. We had uh, traditional space companies such as Eads Astrium, now, now Airbus Space, um, supporting us uh, with a lot of high technology SMEs who again hadn't really worked in space before and academia um, working together. So thanks, thanks to everyone. Um, when I first began uh, looking at CubeSats then they hadn't really been explored very much in the UK. And could I just ask by show of hands how many people have heard of CubeSats now? Um, okay, brilliant, the majority, good. Um, so in 2008 then, when we first started talking about this to uh, the BNSC, what was to become the UK Space Agency, then it hadn't really been um, explored as a possibility. There was some work going on in Surrey at the time. Um, but other than that, um, we saw companies and countries such as the US and Japan really starting to lead the way with the satellites. And so um, going up there, seeing, seeing what they were doing, um, seeing that there was this possibility for using these satellites to, to really develop um, a, a small space community within the UK um, led, led us to, to work on um, different types of satellite. So CubeSats, for a start, aren't just cubes. Um, they can be one U or a unit, which is 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres, um, but more commonly than their slightly larger sizes. But what's key within that is meeting a standardised launch interface because that's what allows us to reduce the costs, and also to standardise some of the internal interfaces so that we have 
um, a third-party um, system of supply and demand of CubeSat subsystems. So what is a CubeSat then, if it's not a cube? Um, it's generally a reduction in project management and quality assurance roles. Generally, there's a reliance on non-space-rated COTS components um, screened or selected based on heritage. There's limited or no built-in redundancy um, at a satellite level, although sometimes, and especially now, as we're looking towards the commercialization of these systems, then constellations or swarms will still be able to provide a similar kind of level of quality of service. There's access to launch opportunities through this standardized launch interface. We tend, in the, in the past, to use amateur experimental frequency bands, and we get support because of that from the amateur ground stations. We tend to go for simplicity in the system design, architecture, and objective. Tend to use student or perhaps less experienced labor. Um, again, this is, this is probably changing, but it was certainly the, the truth with YouCube 1. We had to learn somewhere um, of how to build, to build satellites, and so this was the perfect learning ground for, for us as a company. And modular intercompatible components so that we could develop a market at this level. Um, this was the first satellite that I was aware of. This is Sci-5 from the University of Tokyo. Um, it's still operating today, um, I think nine years after launch. Um, fantastic achievement from the guys there. What, I, what I'm showing this for is really to show you what they went on to do. Um, this is Icarus, which is a JAXA mission. It's cost one-tenth of the cost of even, a, even the experimental small satellite programs within the Japanese Space Ag Agency. It was entirely teamed by people who had come out of the CubeSat programs within Japan, um, and it was highly successful, both meeting its main mission objectives and also its extended mission costs. So coming back to ClydeSpace, in 2008, we were looking to move from power systems into the capability to provide full satellite systems. We had lots of ideas about what we could do with that low-cost, high temporal resolution, um, going out from beyond, beyond Earth orbit, um, raising technology readiness levels of, of new systems which, which ESA or other companies might want to fly, um, using it for in-orbit inspection of existing satellites, um, dedicated science missions, education and infrastructure projects, and lots of niche um, applications. When the total cost that the mission comes down, then it means that we can, we can start considering perhaps previously um, unfeasible <laughs> mission concepts. In order to do that then, we had to look at ways that we could maximise the return from such a small satellite platform. It comes into COTS risk management, the use of global satellite networks, swarms and distributed networks, um, advanced propulsion techniques, here's solar sailing but also electric propulsion, formation flying, reconfigurable architectures, and autonomous systems and deployable elements. So a whole combination of different things which we feel needs to go into these small satellites in order to, um, CubeSats, in order for them to be able to compete with, with the larger small satellites. And through that, at the company, in, in, this was back then, we, we saw six kind of main mechanisms in which we as a company could support the downstream. And by downstream, I mean the main uh, services of, of the space industry. Use of these standardized modular building blocks, such as the PC-104 standard, however much we hate it internally, um, we're not getting away from the fact that this is what people use, and therefore we can plug our systems into others. 
with the rapid assessment of plausible design points and looking at a uh, quick, quick look mission feasibility to determine whether or not a mission would be feasible using something like a CubeSat. Looking at low-cost entry technologies to get people interested in the CubeSats as a market. Um, in particular, we started selling systems off our website, which was the first. In, interestingly, um, although some people laughed, then it was the US military who first started using this system because it meant that there was no uh, input from ourselves about what they were buying the systems for, um, which, which was very interesting for us. Um, scalability and flexibility in the building blocks. So we have a system at Clyde Space where we work on bespoke projects and modular off-the-shelf projects, and they complement each other in that we feed some of the work that we do for our bespoke cust customers into the modular off-the-shelf systems and vice versa. We wanted to grow opportunities and collaborations for in-orbit demonstration as a new company, um, and we were fortunate enough to do that with Ucube One, and simplify the operational interfaces and overheads with cost-effective spinning technology. And here I'm showing um, the idea of relays using Inmarsat technology based on low data rates. So where did we start? Ucube One began as ScotSat. Um, we spent a lot of time lobbying the Scottish executive. They were, they were interesting until um, we asked them to open the purse, and which point they said no, and perhaps thankfully, given the launch date um, and the closeness that, that was to the referendum. Um, but they, they, they declined, um, and so we began to look elsewhere. Um, at this point, this was 2009, we were fortunate enough to meet with Ronan Wall and some other guys at Astrium. Um, they were also interested in CubeSats as a way of training their young engineers in satellite development, those who were on their graduate training programs. And so through that, we developed something called the CubeSat Research Network, which was looking at the various elements um, of how CubeSats could contribute to, to the UK as a whole. And from that, developed the, uh, this UCube approach of industry and universities working together. And at the time, um, we were talking about a series of satellite missions, not just uh, one satellite, but uh, a range of different platforms, a range of different payloads, accepting risk on the satellite level, such that some missions may fail, some may not. But at least we get the training feeding through to our, to our graduates and, um, and learning through to industry. But there wasn't the budget for that. But there was a budget, and that was fantastic. And what there was a budget for was for a UCube 1 pilot. We had five core mission objectives, really, to demonstrate that CubeSats were useful. CubeSat, UCube 1 shall demonstrate new UK space technology, demonstrate the capability of useful science to be performed within a CubeSat-sized spacecraft. Um, at the time, then, there hadn't been very many missions, and certainly none that could be described really as, as science-based. That, that's changed now. Um, and again, demonstrate this industry-university-based collaboration and training. Demonstrate education outreach in STEM subjects. And the last one, which I, uh, which I blush somewhat when I repeat it now, demonstrate uh, from payload kickoff to flight-qualified spacecraft in less than 12 months. We still believe that that's possible, but there are certain conditions, and many of the lessons need to be learned from UQ1 in order to do so. Um, but we defined it in, in such a way that significant parts of this could be met before reaching the launch pad which ultimately we did with TechDemosat in July. Um, as a pilot program, um, we were heavily constrained in terms of personnel, timescales. Um, the free launch being offered by the UK Space Agency was the, the real carrot that we were holding in front of uh, a lot of the development 
both in terms of internally within Clyde Space, but also externally with our payloads. We had 22 proposals when we announced this opportunity of hosted payloads on a CubeSat, um, of which we down-selected four in March 2011. Um, with some venture capital investment at the company, we were able to take on more and co-finance the mission as a full mission with the UK Space Agency. A key part of the development was the concurrency of the platform side of the development and the payloads. Neither of us had built satellites before. How do we communicate between ourselves about uh, what the requirements are? How do we make sure that we're going to end up with something that we can integrate? And so early on, we invested in developing a simple interface emulator which represented the interface between the pay payloads and the platforms. This represented things such as the power, the switch-on cycle, um, the command and data handling, how we took data off the payloads, how we commanded the payloads, the form factors, making sure that holes were in the right place. And we delivered these to all of the different payload teams and a few other people who were interested in developing based on this. Lessons learned. Um, this is fantastic and it highlights a whole load of issues. Make sure that it's reconfigurable so then as you go through the process, you can keep updating it. So I'll quickly run through a few of the different payloads and enabling technology which is on board UCube. Um, from the Open University, we have C3D. It's a CMOS radiation damage monitor. It's actually the same technology which is now to be used on Jupiter Icy Moon's mission. It's the baseline. Um, at the time, then it was just a proposed uh, technology for that. So we were hoping to get Flight Heritage before it was selected as, as uh, extra... Uh, validation for their, for their choice, um, but given the launch delays, we weren't able to do so. It's also got an imager on board, and I'll show some pictures from that uh, later on. We had Topcat, a uh, space weather proof of concept, using uh, the GPS Doppler shift to uh, investigate the ionospheric conditions at the time. Janus from uh, Astrium, looking at the use of non-space-rated SRAM FPGAs. This was the first time that Astrium was considering flying something that wasn't fully space-grade um, as a payload, and also looking at encryption systems based on space radiation as a result. We're fortunate enough to, to have uh, the AMSAT UK transceiver, Funcube 2, on board. This provided both the education and outreach objectives, and also a backdoor transceiver, which, when you come into the lessons learned a bit later on, became absolutely critical during our initial operations. On the more uh, platform side, so the Clyde Space side, then we partnered with a number of different uh, institutions. This one uh, from a company that specialised in phone uh, base stations and developing a new computer system such that we could use um, on the satellite. Deployable solar panels, our heritage was in power systems. We saw that we needed to deliver CubeSats which needed to generate much higher powers and we're up to upwards of 100 watts now we can do on a CubeSat. Attitude control, critically, as these CubeSats develop, then we need to be able to point them more accurately, both in order to get better payload results and also to downlink that data at higher data rates. And in order to do so, an S-band transmitter to move from being at uh, 9K6 BPS, which is our current rate, up to perhaps one megabit per second, perhaps two in the future and the onboard software. And for the onboard software, I must say a big thanks to both Sysis and Bright Ascension um, for their input into this. We had an internal development program, um, which essentially 
collapsed at a certain point within the program and we had to move over. And there was fantastic support from both those organisations for, for helping us to do so. So at the end of 2011, where were we? Well, we had got a basic system. We had gone through our first critical design review uh, under the guidance of Astrium. We performed some vibration tests and parabolic flights to confirm deployments and some functional testing. The launch vehicle, as Doug has highlighted, kept changing. Um, and this provided, obviously, challenges in terms of um, engaging with the different payloads providers and giving them definite dates of when they need to deliver systems. But we persevered, and in March 2012, then the MAIT campaign started. We began with payload workshops. For us, it was the first time that we, we would be accepting things which we hadn't built. So how do we do that? How do we know that what we're getting delivered is what's on paper? We ran through, um, we workshopped this with all the different subsystem providers until we were comfortable that we could come up with lists of tests that we could do to check each different subsystem. And then we took ownership of each of those subsystems. We integrated them. The number of wires worryingly increased, and then it decreased again. We did some end-to-end -end testing, absolutely vital to, to get the end-to-end -end testing up and running as soon as possible. We did thermal cycling internally to Clyde Space. This is a webcam that we've got inside our thermal chamber, um, and performed deployment tests at hot and cold extremes. Went down to Astrium to perform the thermal vacuum. It was at this point that we learned that we should never update the test computer operating system before we can form a crit. In fact, never. Just never do it. Um, what happened was that we, we showed up. I think it was £2,000 a day, something like that, is what Astrium charge. Um, and our test computer had updated, and the USB driver now did not work, and we couldn't communicate with our satellite. Um, that was a day and a half of very frantic phone calls up and down the country. RF testing and vibration testing. And so, towards the end of 2013, we were ready for our flight readiness review, or so we thought. It was one of five reviews on Clyde Space performed by Astrium. There was over 400 pages of documentation prepared by Clyde Space and some of our partners in advance. 117 uh, RIDs, review item discrepancies, responded to in advance. There was 11 Astrium experts, and to put that in context, the core team at Clyde Space was less than six. And we passed, um, pending operational checkout. And there were, there were issues, and I'll run through those in a moment. But this is just to show you the loading that we had. Um, you can see when the reviews are. This is relative loading um, for commercial reasons. But um, whenever there's a review, then you can see how, how much input that's requiring. And what we really want to see there, especially for a small company, um, is a balance. Because you can't do planning based on that. Everything else stopped within the company when there was a review. The reviews were excellent. Um, with that, we're not saying um, that there should be no oversight. This was a co-funded mission. It was a, a government-funded. Uh, we were using taxpayers' money. Of course there should be. Um, but we need to work on more on how, how that can be done efficiently. And I've got some ideas about that further on in the presentation. So the key focuses at this point were really operational readiness, um, ongoing work with, with RAL space and supported by BAL to really exercise and drill all the different spacecraft operations and, 
and here we have to thank RailSpace for, for their dedication to that. Finalising the ADCS, we learnt how difficult it was to uh, characterise a system and simulate it and then cross-validate those two, two, uh, two operations in order to be sure that our satellite pointing would be okay. And flight software checkout. Um, keep testing, keep testing, keep testing. But we use that time through the, the delays and we come to the launch campaign. And here, probably I, I just need to thank Andy Curry and the team of SSTL. I went out to um, Kazakhstan, fairly, fairly naive, um, and th they had wonderful stories and they supported us fantastically, so, so thank you. Um, flight preparation, a little bit hairy, activated the satellite into its deployment mode as I was putting it into the pod. Um, that meant that we had 30 seconds to, to deactivate it and then reactivate it again. But essentially all we had to do was pull out this pin and this is, this is the photo that I would check to, to allow me to sleep at night. But it was definitely out. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, but the, because of all the drilling, then it was certainly the case that this stage, the launch campaign, went the smoothest out of any test or any procedures that we did on YouTube, and I think that was just testament to both the delays but also the use of time um, that we, we did beforehand. Um, here's the photo of us trying to load YouCube onto Frigat. Um, we'd practiced it in the office, kind of standing there holding it like this. Six kilos is how much it weighs. That's fine, except when you're standing on top of hydrazine balanced on a very small ledge and you're in clean room outfits. It was a very perspiration-rich environment. <laughs> but we did it. It was complete. It was attached. And that's the sneaky shot that we got and that we weren't allowed to take of the whole uh, satellite uh, free gap. So we had it ready. We didn't have anyone out there to watch the launch, unfortunately. Um, so we raced back to the operations centre at Chibolton. I should divert a little bit here and say we had sat in meetings in Russia um, where it was raised that perhaps the head of Senki, the, the ground support team, wouldn't necessarily want us to see a live feed. And all the payload providers, all the satellites, complained and said, look, it's in the contract. Um, the guys nodded and said, still, we, we're probably not going to show you the live feed. We said, well, it's in the contract. They came back the next day and said, yeah, definitely, definitely be in there. Um, so, 10 minutes before launch, we, we stood there looking at this screen. And they said, actually, no, there won't be a live feed. So all we had was this. And, and the Twitter accounts from, from a Tim Just, I think, who's here. So thank you. That was the confirmation that YouTube was, was away. Um, and we used that, actually, your, your, your tweets, to estimate when it was going to come overhead. Um, so a little bit of modern technology coupled with some old technology. This is the first message that we heard from YouCube. Um, it's YouCube calling Midori, um, which has some special meaning um, for, for my daughter, given that the, the satellite was definitely one of my children and the most troublesome. It was nice to hear it trying to talk to the other. Um, so operations performed. Well, to date, we've received the health beacon, um, We've estimated tracking in TLE, um, identified the object based on NORAD. We've received and processed telemetry packets. 
We've demonstrated uplink command, very low spin rates since the deployment, operation of the redundant communications, reports of the beacon from all over the world, downlink of large data transfers, and platform systems checkout. That hasn't been without challenges. We had a major issue with our primary downlink in that the, uh, when it was active, then it blocked the uplink. There was too much RF noise. It blocked the uplink both on our primary transceiver and also our secondary transceiver. Our operations concept relies upon the idea of handshaking, so the uplink and the downlink working together. That took a lot of working around in order to get, to get round. Um, but there have been upgrades to the ground station to compensate and a lot of perseverance from our ground team, um, led by Helen Walker. All the payloads have now been exercised and we've got initial images captured and radiation damage performed. We've just today, in fact, have uploaded a patch um, developed for, for a secondary problem which could well be connected, which is an RF EMI issue um, which we see the I2C locking up. So a dedicated ground team, some of them there, and not just the main team, but also the fantastic support of AMSAT UK and AMSAT throughout the world. Um, this was the first image, not much, but we were quite excited. Um, we knew that the antennas had deployed at this point, um, although that should be straight, so we, went, we had to look a bit more. Um, but this was the first image, and with, again, with reanalyzing, um, looking at where the satellite was pointing, we were then able to capture an image of the Earth, and, that, and this was really when we knew that we, we'd, we'd done more than just the minimum success. The minimum success was hearing the beacon, getting it up into space in the first place. This was fantastic. Um, so what about the objectives from UCube 1? UCube 1 shall demonstrate new UK space technology. Well, we've developed a full infrastructure, really, for development. We have the support tools, the emulators, the flat sats, and the processes, um, both within Clyde Space, but also further afield, to develop these systems. We've got the ground station infrastructure and services. In business terms, then there's been a number of different companies um, benefiting, the primary being, being my own Clyde Space, um, which order book now stands at about 3 million, which was unthinkable just a year or so ago. We've got two international platform sales and many more in the pipeline. We have uh, collaboration across the board. Um, I've heard of a number of different companies from people who are involved in UCube 1. I think it attracted the sort of person who would go out and, and do, do different things, and, and we'll see those emerging over the next couple of years. Uh, UCube 1 shall demonstrate the capability of useful science to be performed within a CubeSat-sized spacecraft. Well, we had these 22 proposals, um, of which ultimately four flew, uh, three flew, four were selected, one, one unfortunately wasn't delivered. We had two PhD theses and 15-plus papers. UCube 1 shall demonstrate industry and university-based training in spacecraft development. Um, there was a lot of knowledge transfer, um, both in terms of within Clyde Space, the engineers and the managers, so that we could go on to do new missions. The engagement with Astrium was fantastic, the amount that we learned from an experienced team like that. We didn't always necessarily uh, have to follow that advice. Sometimes we should have stopped the analysis at a certain point, but just going through and knowing what, uh, what we should do or what was expected in, in large space was an important um, process. We had numerous student projects at Strathclyde and beyond, mainly at Strathclyde because that's where I was based, um, going through. And a lot of the students now um, are involved in REXUS and BEXUS projects, um, which is an ESA program to, to get more flight heritage hands-on training. UQ1 shall demonstrate education outreach. Well, we've got FunCube2, 
is operating. Um, there's C3D demos, satellites, which have been used in education throughout the country, mainly in the southeast with, with, uh, in Milton Keynes. Um, SED's involvement through uh, MPQ, but unfortunately it wasn't flown. Arts Business Grants, this is a small uh, satellite reinterpretation of a glowing uh, satellite with wings. Um, so we've really raised the awareness, but we did lots of things wrong. This is just uh, based on analysis of timesheets and where effort uh, was perhaps wasted. And taking as a, as a as unity uh, this, this idea that sometimes the launch processes cause lots of delays and regulatory overheads, then if we take that as one, then there's lots of other things that we could be doing better and we shouldn't necessarily complain too much about uh, UK regulation. Um, the, the most important being uh, the adoption of protoflight so the use of a single model. Um, we really need some sort of engineering model or flat side, and that became even more apparent during operations where we had nothing to compare our system to. And the inclusion of technology development items within the baseline. This was inevitable as, a, as our first um, in order to get investment, in order to get venture capital. As a company, we had to fly um, technology development items within the baseline. That won't necessarily happen again. But you can see that if we looked at this in terms of commercial rates, then that would probably save about half a million. So some of the key lessons. Do less on each satellite, have more satellites. I couldn't agree more with what Doug was saying about a series of satellite missions. Have access to an EM or baseline platform system throughout. Have a method of assessing the TRL or payload functionality. Um, like Doug, we experienced a certain amount of vaporware. Um, this, having, having a way of assessing the TRL through demonstration would really um, really help to, to, uh, to ensure that the systems that get selected are selected and they're selected at the right time. Do not include technology development in baseline, as I've said. Use launch delays to add value, especially in terms of operations. Ensure a single source of funding over duration. Um, we obviously were, were pin, pulling together lots of different funding sources in order to deliver UQ. Um, agree up front an, an acceptable level of uncertainty in the system design. Um, CubeSats are inevitably going to be higher risk than other missions, but if it's done as a part of an overall program, then it doesn't necessarily mean that the program has to fail based upon the failure of one satellite. Ensure oversight commensurate with overall spend. Early and representative end-to-end -end testing is vital. It's really difficult for us to assess RF and EMI performance on the ground, so we need some sort of in-orbit uh, experience and dedicated funding for education, training, and outreach on the back of these kind of satellite programs. So what's the future for YouCube? Well, 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 we wait and see within government what, what happens with the program, whether or not it's rolled into a larger IOD mission or whether it remains on its own. Then within the UK, then um, through a Royal Commission Fellowship and with the, catapult, the satellite applications catapult, then we've developed a flatsat system, one based in Harwell, one based in Strathclyde, where we have matching systems so that we can start to develop different payloads based upon the experiences of UCube 1, going through a new development process, looking at achieving more rapid turnarounds from concept to launch. Rapid integration and demonstration, systems design tools, uh, demonstration of low-cost technologies, uh, facilities and space for potential PIs to use so they can understand uh, how, how a satellite will be used in orbit to develop the concept of operations. 
facilitate this through life and concurrent CubeSat development philosophy, co-locating the key people that you need within the satellite development and to network these across the UK so more people have access to them. This is a typical flat set that we have set up now, um, the one in Strathclyde. So the basic subsystems all plugging in and then subsystem developers with new ideas. Um, here we've got things like uh, gene sequencing, uh, new optical systems, going through, through functional testing to prototype and ultimately environmental test and supplementing that with design tools such that we can quickly assess what the system's design point should be. Um, and my own personal interest, the optimization with genetic algorithms, but that's just a, a side, really. Um, so some of the typical applications that we could see. Um, this is a single photon entanglement source, um, which has been miniaturized to the size that it would fit on a CubeSat. Could be used for quantum key distribution. Could be used for some fundamental uh, physics experiments. Biosciences with Cranfield. It's 3D printed rotary valve systems. Again, they could be used for a whole range of different applications. But in particular, an interesting one would be human lung uh, cells because that's already been studied a lot on the ground so we can do a comparative study. CMOS sensing, using the experience of UCube 1 in sensing to develop more applications in orbit servicing, Earth observations, spacecraft health based on the UCube 1 heritage. And there's obviously many more in the works. So if, the, if anyone has a good idea, then if they want to engage with us or, or with the catapult, then, then do. Um, so to conclude, UCube 1 has completed the majority of its objectives before reaching the launch pad. Um, this was um, based on independent review uh, at the UK Space Agency. Operations have begun, and again, we have learned how to use the satellite in space with success. It hasn't always been easy, but we have had successes. Uh, key lessons from this mission development have been captured and will influence the next stage work. We are moving forward with Nanobed regardless to support future UK development and, and fuel this growth in CubeSats. And we're looking forward to wider discussions on how best to use UCube 1 experience in future UK activities. And I would end there, apart from, I just want to put it in a wider context. There's been over 200 CubeSats that have been deployed in space this year alone, with the trend expected to rise. Google's purchase of Skybox Imaging has really changed the game in terms of how much money is getting invested. 500 million in July 2014. Planet Labs have deployed 71 Dove CubeSats since January 2014. Here's samples of some of the imaging which has been compared to Landsat. Aspire, another US company, are offering custom CubeSat missions and data analytics services from Earth observation. And crowdsource missions, raising up to 1 million USD in capital for missions. You look at the Rosetta mission, well, that was 3 euros per person throughout the whole of Europe. Uh, and is this a bubble, or are we in the UK doing enough? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, and sorry for the plug. I, th I thought this was amazing, and I'd already had the, uh, the, the crowdsourcing element in my presentation, and then this was announced last week, and I think this is a fantastic example of what could be done in the UK. Um, so I included it. Uh, that's it. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society 
share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.